Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin. This week, we are talking about the upcoming Vuelta a España, as well as the transfer market goings on so far. First, if you want to support the podcast, you can sign up for the newsletter at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. There's a free weekly edition, and if you enjoy the podcast, that is a no-brainer. Sign up for that right now. Um, There's also a paid edition that's daily during Grand Tours and also does detailed analysis for every major race. It also comes with discounts to select brands. You can check that out at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. All right, back to the cycling. I will just a little bit of housekeeping up top. I will be out of town on vacation. I'll still be doing the daily Vuelta analysis via the the newsletter, but I probably will skip next week for the podcast. Um, Just going to be hard to lug all the equipment around and steal away for a quiet moment to record. So I will not be doing that, but does not mean you won't have an exciting time watching the Vuelta. Just had a meeting this morning and we were talking about how exciting this Vuelta is going to be. It's actually um, it's kind of funny because it lands at the end of the year. It tends to be like the lowest key of the Grand Tours. Um, everything's on Spanish time. You know, races start later. They finish later. Um, it's, it's just like a chill vibe. But this, it it's, tends to be one of the better Grand Tours, if not the best Grand Tour, um, maybe more often than, than it's not. This happens because you have major stars. It's just kind of like the pool filter of Grand Tours. Like anyone who's had disappointment or... Uh, something happened to their season, they tend just to kind of wash up at the Vuelta. The Vuelta catches them. Um, think like Primus Roglic goes into the Tour de France and like career form, probably fit enough to win, if not um, just challenge Bogacar seriously for that win. Crashes out on crashes on stage three, leaves on stage eight. Um, and then he wins the Olympic time trial championships by over a minute. And now he's heading to the Vuelta with like incredible form. Um, same thing happened last year after he lost the Tour. Goes to the Vuelta, looks great. And then we have Egan Bernal, who won the Tour de France in 2019, won the 2021 Giro d'Italia. He, I guess technically he has raced Roglic before the Grand Tour at the 2020 Tour de France, but Bernal was really not himself. Um, he was like a, a far cry from himself at that race. So we've never really seen these guys race, um, which is crazy. It's like one of the big, I feel like the big weaknesses of pro cycling, you kind of have these stars that just like revolve around each other for years and years and years and never really face off. Um, it's, it's really the worst way you could market a sport. It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, and I frankly can't believe people even get into pro cycling who aren't currently into pro cycling because the structure is so stupid. But we, get, we finally get to see them face off. Um, Bernal's maybe not in the best shape. I'll touch on that a little bit later. I actually touched on that in a newsletter I just sent out. Um, at beyondthepeloton.substack.com. It's the latest post. And then we get Richard Carapaz, who was at the Vuelta last year, got second to Primus Roglic, actually completed the course faster than Roglic, but Roglic won because of time bonuses, which shows uh, sprinting, winning the stages, getting time bonuses, speed at the finish tends to be really important at the Vuelta. Um, Another reason the race is so good is that the gaps tend to be really, really small. Not sure why that is. I mean, maybe I could do a deep dive into that. I don't quite understand. I mean, the gaps at the Giro tend to be bigger than the Tour, and the Tour tends to be, you know, the Tour is is one on tight margins, you know, most years, not this year, but the Vuelta is is often a really, really, really close race. Um, would be interesting to dive into why that is. In addition to those three, we have Hugh Carthy. He is, um, he got third last year. I, I, don't, I don't think he's a serious challenger for the win, maybe the podium. I'll touch on that a little bit later too. Mika Landa, also maybe another podium guy, not a win guy. 
and Adam Yates. I mean, there's a reason, I think I talked about this before, the zero, it's like simplistic thinking, but winners win. Losers don't normally, people who lose don't normally win. It's kind of like the, the boring thing about cycling. Uh, Roglic, Bernal, and Carapaz are all Grand Tour winners. Carthy, Landa, and Adam Yates are not Grand Tour winners throughout their career. So um, it just tends to be that people who have won in the past tend to win in the present and also often same into the future. But those three guys, they'll play an interesting role because they're, they're all such talented climbers um, and they appear, at least Carthy and Landa appear to be in pretty good shape. Um, so they could really mix the race up in the mountains and you know, kind of make life a pain in the butt for Roglic, Bernal, and Carapaz, which is something we didn't see at the tour. We did not see anyone really ever making life difficult for Tadej Pogacar. So this Vuelta is, is it's going to be really good. Uh, Tadej Pogacar was supposed to do this race, but it just never made sense because well, so he wins the tour. He flies across the world, you know, in five days races, the Olympic road race championship. Then he's going to, I guess this is the same thing Richard Carapaz did and then come back and race the Vuelta. But the key difference is Carapaz didn't win the tour. Um, usually when you, when you win the tour, you want to like, you know, let your hair down and party a little bit. You might have some sponsor engagements. It's time to go around and collect some appearance fees from, you know, maybe some speaking engagements, maybe some post-tour crits. Just really pad that bank account, have a good time, go to Ibiza, go to, go to Mallorca, just really, you know, party your face off if, if we want to be frank about it. Um, yeah, it, it'd be crazy. It was actually crazy to me that he was thinking about doing this. It really, it probably wouldn't be the best thing for his career long term. That just seems like such a grind to try to win two consecutive Grand Tours. I mean, I, Chris Froome did do this in, in 2017, which is crazy to think about. Um, I'd also have to sit back and maybe collate all the people who have done that. It's very rare to win the Vuelta, to even try to try to attempt to win the Vuelta after winning the Tour de France. Um, like Lance Armstrong famously never did anything except the tour. I don't think he won any major races after he started winning tours, um, which is, it's kind of lame. I mean, it's, it's cool that Froome is trying to win other stuff in addition to the tour. It's very cool that Tadej Pogacar can win one days in addition to winning the tour. But as far as just like your, your career health, uh, you can't imagine that's great for you. That's got to be incredibly taxing. But if we just look at the route, it becomes kind of glaringly obvious that this is the Primus Roglic show. If he is if he is recovered, which it's possible he's not. He had that hard crash of the tour. You know, maybe he's not quite back to where he was. Maybe he missed he's missing some fitness. Um he did get dropped in the Olympic road race, but he did get dro- he got lo- dropped on like the last major climb when a lot of great riders were getting dropped. He was really dominant in that time trial. As we've discussed earlier this year, though, there can be cracks in your base fitness that don't necessarily show up in like a 45-minute to hour-long time trial that do show up when we get to the high mountains. Having said that, this thing has this has nine uphill or summit finishes and two time trials totaling 40 kilometers. Um, you might as well just call this the Vuelta a Roglic because this is perfect for him. I mean, I couldn't think of like a a more perfect route for him. He's the best in the world at uphill finishes. He can win summit finishes, you know, slightly uphill finishes, medium uphill finishes. He's incredibly fast as well as just a great climber. Uh, he's going to rack up serious time bonuses on, on these uphill finishes. The only th- way this go wrong is his Yumbo team can't pull back breakaways and he's missing time bonuses because of that. Um, that would be the main weak point I would look to if I was Enios. 
Um, knowing Ineos, though, they're just going to sit on the front and pull it back for Roglic, just like they did Pogacar at the Tour. Um, it's hard to imagine him losing this race. The betting odds reflect that. He's at negative 105, so you'd have to bet $105 to win 100. Um, Bernal, he's the second highest favorite at plus 500. I actually don't hate that pick. I think he could win it. I think he could win it if he was in a Giro d'Italia form. But as we saw at the San Sebastian and the recent Vuelta a Burgos, he's just not there. Um, he's talented. He's one of the only riders in the world that's probably talented enough to build form this quickly. Um, the race starts on, he'd basically have to get in shape in a week. You know, that's like impossible for most people because the race starts at the time trial. By stage three, we have a summit finish. By stage six, we have an uphill finish. Stage seven, we have a hard uphill finish. Um, so in the first seven stages, there's going to be significant time gaps. That's not great if you're trying to ride into fitness. Um, it's really not good. That would be my big concern with him. And then there's Richard Carapaz, plus 800. You know, he could win too. Roglic is an unbeatable. But I just got to think that the, the, the fact that he did the full tour as well as the Olympics is going to be really hard to, to, back up the, to back that up with this Vuelta. Uh, the best thing that happened to Roglic's Vuelta campaign is that he left the tour after eight stages. Almost perfect preparation right there. Um, Hugh Carthy looks great right now. Mikael Landa looked really good at the Vuelta Burgos, at least on the final stage. Adam Yates looks terrible after crashing. Also, forgot to mention that with Bernal. He crashed with Adam Yates and Danny Martinez, all three Ineos riders uh, that are going to the Vuelta. First stage of Vuelta Burgos. They never looked the same again. It's hard to tell if that was the crash affecting them or they just don't have the fitness. But Yates specifically looked looks pretty bad after that crash. Um, he never quite performed how I expected him to. So, you know, that that's one reason that you don't race that Vuelta Burgos is a little close to the Vuelta España. I don't think any, you know, at least from my count, no rider in like the last 12 years has raced the Vuelta Burgos before going on to win the Vuelta España. I just think those races are too close together. Um, For a couple of reasons, you wouldn't want to race that close to your Grand Tour objective. You want a minimum be done maybe two weeks before. And we're seeing exactly why, because it's just kind of difficult. You kind of want to start to be tapering off and maybe, you know, focusing on on your own timetable there as opposed to just being in a race, getting shuttled around, and then also crashes. It just it's really risky to be riding around in a group before you even get to the race that you want to win. I don't I don't want to spend too much time on the Vuelta. The Vuelta is it's just a fun race that will speak for itself. It's always kind of fun because we're we're a little bit burnt out this time of year. It's like, yeah, we get really excited for the Giro, really excited for the Tour, and then the Volta tends to pop up on you. Um, sometimes you can be on vacation, which I seem to always be during the Volta. But it is, it's always a good race. Um, I, I think this first week is going to be so exciting. We're just going to get fireworks right out of the gate. Um, I, I have a hard time seeing anyone beating Roglic. I think Bernal would really have to have an impressive turnaround. And another note is Ineos has a good team on paper. They, but I'm wondering who's going to do the work there. They have Egan Bernal. He's a GC contender. Richard Carapaz, GC contender. Adam Yates, GC contender. Jonathan Navarez, he's going to work for people. Tom Pidcock, he'll be hunting stages. Uh, not, not experienced at all in helping anyone at a Grand Tour because he's never raced one before. Salvatore Puccio, uh, he's a great, great domestique. He'll work for people. Pavel Sivakov, he thinks he's a GC leader. Dylan Van Barro, he'll work for people. So out of all of those riders, of an eight-rider team, you have one, two, three riders who are really career domestiques, and then two flex riders in Sivakov and Pitcock. 
Um, it, this is, I don't like the strategy at all. I don't like it at all because Bernal, Carapaz, and Yates are all extremely ambitious Grand Tour riders, Grand Tour leaders. And if Yates can't prove himself here, his career as a leader is in serious jeopardy. He wasn't even, in, he didn't even make the team for the first two Grand Tours of the year. This will be the first Grand Tour he's even attended for Ineos. If he can't make an impression here, I just think he's on domestic duty for the rest of his career, or at least while he's there. So this is a really pivotal race for him. Um, Carapaz isn't going to want to back down and concede to Bernal because he's, you know, he's Olympic champion and got third at the Tour, but it's, he's kind of fighting for his GC life as well because he got third at that Tour, but he never really serious challenged, seriously challenged for the win. Bernal is probably the writer of the future inside of that team, or at least that's how management is thinking. So if you're Carapaz, Bernal is your, is your biggest, biggest threat. Um, he's gonna, really going to want to try to prove to management that he is a better bet than Bernal to back a future Tour de France's. And Tom Pickock, Tom Pickock's an amazing rider. I mean, he's an Olympic gold medalist in the mountain bike. He is a, a, a whimsical flaneur if there ever one was, was one, though. Um, I, I can't think anything. I couldn't think of a rider that's probably worse to try to work for people. He's a mountain biker. He's a free spirit. <laughs> he just kind of rides around and rides hard and try to win stages. He'll probably win a few stages. He'll look great. He'll probably struggle in the second and the third week, just like Remco Evenepoel did at the Giro. And, but he will not add, at least in my opinion, he will not add to you know, the strength of the team. I think they're going to have a hard time consolidating behind a leader when the time comes, when they need to. This is the same problem they had at the Tour. Oddly, they didn't have this problem at all at the Giro. They picked kind of the perfect team to rally around and lead Bernal. They win the Giro, and then they kind of have, I would say, an abject failure at the Tour, and then they just kind of seem to continue the strategy, you know, to be not kind to them, but kind of explain the position they're in. They probably are in a hard position. They have a lot of man- a lot of egos to manage, a lot of personalities to manage. A lot of these riders have the same agent. He's an Italian agent who's extremely important to the team. He funnels a lot of the talent to the team. Um, he's big in South America. That's why you see so many South American talents going to Ineos. And you know, you can't. What are you going to do? You can't just not start Adam Yates at a Grand Tour. He's a big British cycling star. You have to take him to some race. Um, and Bernal and Carapaz are probably your future. So, and you want to give them as much run as you can. You know, Bernal, it would be crazy if you didn't give him leadership here because he won the Giro. He certainly deserved it. Carapaz just won the Olympics and got third at the Tour. And you want to take care of him and make him feel like he's getting his chances to lead enough races. Um, and Tom Pickock's probably your meal ticket for the future if you're that team because he's the next big British cycling star. So, and Pavel Sivakov, uh, we'll get to the Sivakov effect a little bit. I was talking to a friend yesterday who was you know, telling me, like, does the media not realize Pavel Sivakov is, is not good yet? Um, it, it's kind of a good point. I loved him last year. I, I still think he's a huge talent, um, but he is 24. And you know, he won Tour of Poland in 2019, Tour of the Alps in 2019. And he had a good ride at the uh, Dauphiné last year. He got fourth in the final stage, which was a hard stage. He got 11th overall, but really that's it in the results department. You know, that's a pretty thin Palmares for a 24-year-old quote-unquote like budding star. Um, it's, it's time to almost get a little bit worried about Sivakov as, as a leader, as a star. Um, and I don't know if he has the ability to really work. It sounds crazy because he's so strong, you know, and he's not 
you know, presumably not an idiot that you think, well, he can work, he can at least work for somebody, but he hasn't really proved that he can. You know, he crashes a lot. If we go back to the Giro d'Italia, he was gone after five stages. And, you know, that's actually one of the worst. I hate this saying. It's so stupid. It's big in American sports, but like the best ability is availability. Uh, that is, that applies here for sure. If you can't stay in races, you can't help your team. Um, and that's a big concern with Sivakov. I, I, I do not, you know, I, I almost think it's time for him. He, he should maybe go to a team like Bora and they can, you know, take a few sprinter, take a sprinter like Sam Bennett to the tour and then just kind of have Sivakov as their plan B, like, hey man, do what you can in the GC. Because when the pressure is on, he does not seem to be, you know, the type of rider who can handle that. You know, no, no offense to him personally, but you know, that, that's most, most people and most riders can't handle that. You know, it's, not, it's not anything to be ashamed about. I think those are the big, I was actually, so in, the, in my newsletter I just sent out, I said, I, I don't consider Hugh Carthy to be a contender to win this because while he did get third last year, that was only an 18 stage race. That was on a full 21 stages, just an unusual shortening of the schedule due to COVID. But in my count, Carthy really loses time when he's racing as a GC rider in full 21 stage grand tours. He loses time, major time, like minutes on sprint stages. Someone pushed back on me and said I was being unfair and that he actually loses time when he gets caught after attacking on summit finishes. I, I have not crunched the numbers on this, so I can't accurately push back on this, but I did go back and count that he, he has lost a lot of time on sprint stages uh, in full grand tours. And the fact that that Vuelta cut out, there was really no flat sprint stages or flat long stages. So the, those are the stages they took out to make it 18 stages. It was like the perfect race for him. It started with uphill finishes and kind of ended with uphill finishes. Um, and there was maybe one time trial. So the fact that there's 40 Ks of TT, he's not a terrible time. He can be good in the time trial, but I'm just looking at the others and thinking, okay, so is Hugh Carthy better than Roglic? No. Is he, has he gotten better in the last year? No. If anything, he's gotten a little, he's regressed a little bit from 2020. Is he better than Richard Carapaz? No, not at all. And Carapaz has seemingly gotten better, if anything, while, while Carthy has regressed. Is he better than Bernal? No. Bernal is, is looking pretty good, or at least he was earlier this year. Um, he's maybe not the fittest he's ever been at the moment. The thing where Carthy benefits is he hasn't raced. So he raced Vuelta Burgos, but before that, he hadn't raced since the Giro. Um, that's a long time to, I guess, to be resting. It sounds, it's not like he's sitting around getting out of shape. He's building up his fitness you know, at his own pace. He's not dealing with the stresses of racing. You know, that actually, to me, would be where if you're going to tell me that Carthy could win the race, that's what I would maybe point to and say, okay, that's his big advantage, that he hasn't been grinding himself down this summer while everyone else has. Um, so I, I want to be fair to Carthy. He's not, I, I don't love his style of racing. Um, it might just be the way he looks on a bike. I don't consider him to be the most stylish rider, but he's certainly a tough rider. He's certainly good. He can climb incredibly well on his day. I just think he lacks the consistently consistency to beat some pretty serious riders at a Grand Tour. I um, mean, the fact that he did struggle at the Giro earlier this year, he got eighth, even though that EF team was really built just for him in the GC. Um, I, I, didn't, I didn't love that. That wasn't a great showing for me, at least. And Mika Landa, um, we all Landa, we all love Landa, Landa Isamo. He's, you know, he's the man. Um, the guy is, is not good at winning races. Um, just like going by winning, he's not good. 
think the last he won Volta Abrigos overall. I think that was his first win since 2019. Um, he looked fit at the start of the Giro. He had that really nasty crash. I think it was in the first week and uh, going into a town on a sprint finish. And he's uh, seemed to recover okay. He did get dropped at San Sebastian after like a kilometer after attacking. So that's not the best sign. But the fact that he won Burgos, that's not nothing. So, you know, I, and I think Landa is another rider that it's consistency is tough for him. He really struggles in Grand Tours that start hard. Um, he loses a lot of time in the first week of Grand Tours, just generally. And then he's always chasing. I, I think that tends to people over, overrate him or overestimate his ability because he seems to be closing time on people in the second and third week of Grand Tours. But that's just because he's losing time in the first week. You know, that's not good if you're trying to win the overall. It's, it's almost just like an optical illusion. And this first week with the time trial and the summit finishes could be tough for him. And so that race starts Saturday, uh, seven kilometer TT in Burgos. And then we go from there. First, first summit finish on, on Monday. Gonna be, it's going to be great. Okay, so transfer, transfer market, transfer market news. UAE signing everybody. Peter Sagan went to to Team Total Energies, which I was calling Team Total Direct Energy because that was their name, I guess, up until this year. They're so bad, they changed their name, and I didn't notice because they've not been at the front of any race for that long. Um, So after Sagan moved, we started getting some some more transfer activity. UAE is signing up everybody. Um, Joao Almeida is going there. Mark Soler, George Bennett, Pascal Ackerman, Philips Grobschata, who I love. Um, Jose Udige, um from the Kona Quick Step. Um, some of the, these are like splashy moves. I don't, I don't totally see the strategy here. I love the Joao Almeida signing. I think he is underrated. He only, he's only won two professional races in his entire career, which is probably why he's underrated. That's not like the. Uh, the most confidence-inspiring Palmares. And one of those wins is the National Portuguese Individual Time Trial Championships. His other win is actually today's stage of Tour of Poland. Uh, but I do think Joao is, he's 23. He's one of the only riders. His Giro, his Giro performance after stage four was incredible. Um, he did lose that time on stage four. He lost like four and a half minutes on stage four. Not, not a great sign. That's how you uh, lose a Grand Tour that you were possibly the best rider in the last week and a half in. But he can time trial, and when he's fit, he can time trial and climb with the best. Um, you know, it's possible UAE was looking around at the landscape and seeing, saying, you know, what rider could beat Tade Pogacar if they really got a team behind them? They identified Joao Almeida, and then they signed him. Um, that's the sky move. That's the old Nebraska football move where they'd have like 200 scholarship players because even if they never intended to play any of them, they just knew they couldn't go to other schools and compete against them. Um, I would think that there's a bit of that going on here, where they've now taken one of the uh, most promising, talented GC riders off the market, so he is not you know, a problem for them. Even if he has a tour where he's better than Tade Pogacar, he's inside their own team. They can control that. Um, worst case scenario, he wins the tour and beats Tade Pogacar, and the team still wins. So it's really stacking the deck you know, in their favor. I, I love the move. I think it's great. It's a little weird for him because he, so he leaves to kind of quick step who frankly didn't treat him that well. They're not the, they're not a good GC team at all. If you want to have GC success, you can't stay there. It's why Enric Mass left. Um, it's probably why Joao left. 
you, you will not get support. I mean, we saw that the zero where they made him sit up and wait for Rimko Evanapol, a rider who never had a serious chance of challenging for the overall win there, probably just because he's Belgian and it's a Belgian team. Um, he, he couldn't stay there. So he goes to UAE. Well, he's now he's on a team with Tade Pogacar. Like he's probably not going to get leadership at the tour over the best GC rider in the world, possibly just the best rider in the world, hands down at the moment. Um, what he will get though is leadership at probably any other race that he wants. Um, the UAE is not a good team. I was just looking this at this today. They're they're pretty bad outside of Tade Pogacar, especially now that Alexander Kristoff has started to fade as he gets into his 30s. Um, they would be one of the worst teams in the world tour if you just stripped out Pogacar's results. And they really can't field a competitive team at any Grand Tour that's not the Tour de France. Um, I assume that's what the Almeida move is about, that, hey, man, you get leadership at the Giro or the Vuelta, or both if you want, um, and then you work for Tadej Pogacar at the Tour, because they desperately need a rider like that who can work for Pogacar, who can stay there with him you know, late on final climbs, or even shred the group on a final climb if, if need be. There's very few riders in the world can, that can do that. Almeida is one of them. Another weird thing I, I heard today is that Alan Piper said, who's the, the managing director, or like the performance director at UAE, said that in the next few years, Pogaccio is going to skip the tour and just do the Giro and the Volta. I mean, that is crazy. Like, I can't, it's like Michael Jordan going and playing baseball in the middle of his NBA career. Like, what are you doing? The goal here should be to win Tour de France. Like, that's what matters. I'm sure that's what matters to their sponsors. Um, I can't quite tell if this is just to kind of give Almeida hope that he could go to UAE and lead a Tour de France team in three or four years. Um, I hope that's what it is. But, you know, if that's true, then this is great for Joao Almeida. You know, he could get a chance to lead the team in a few years. Um, Another thing to think about is he's never made a Tour de France team for Dakota Quickstep. He's not likely to in the future because they don't want to go to the Tour and support a GC leader. They would rather go for sprints and go, they, they like to stage hunt. That's their whole MO. They want to win as many races as possible. They've won more races than any other team in the Grand Tour or in the World Tour for years and years and years. And they will continue to going forward. They don't want to waste their energy chasing elusive GC titles that will probably never come. Um, not a terrible strategy, actually, if you just want to rack up wins. But so he, he wasn't going to make a tour team at Dukonuk. Now what he's assured himself of is he'll probably make a tour team, at least just to work for Pogacar. And then at least you're in the game. You know, you're in the conversation. What if Pogacar has a flat and loses a few minutes, you know, which happened on stage seven of the 2020 tour? What if he crashes? Then you can step into a leadership position. You know, if you remember, this happened in 2014 at the tour with Chris Froome. He crashes on stage maybe five or six, breaks his wrist. Richie Port steps into the leadership position, totally bungles it. But, you know, in another world, Richie Port wins that Tour de France. And he gets a chance on a team where people would have said, hey, you're never going get to get a chance to ride for the win. So um, I really like this move. He signed through like 2027. Uh, I think it's great for him. It's great for the team. He probably maybe gives up some money if, let's say, he does win the Tour. Now he's locked into a long-term contract at probably around 2 million euros a year which I'm sure is great for him and for his agents, Ken Summer and Joao Correira at the, at the Corso Agency. So happy for those guys. Hope they got a piece of that contract. It's nice. I'm sure it's nice guaranteed money and he'll really have a lot more chances than he did to kind of quick step. So I love that move. Um, that's about the last move I love. I mean, they picked up Mark Soler. 
who I, he's 27. He's not had a GC result in years. He's a decent stage hunter. He won a stage at the 2020 Volta Spagna. Um, he won a stage at the 2021 Tour of Romandy. But I feel like he, he, so he wins the 2018 Perry Nice race. And I feel like the cycling world is stuck in 2018. They're looking at that result and thinking this guy could win the Tour de France. Um, well, Mark Soler, if, if you've watched the Movistar documentary on Netflix, it's, it's beyond me that I, I cannot believe Movistar put up with him for so long. Um, I'm sure they're not that bummed to lose him. I, I, I actually probably can't believe their luck that someone else is paying him to race on their team. He seems like a huge pain in the butt. He's way more immature than you would imagine for a 27-year-old. He, he seems like he's in his early 20s when you watch him in the documentary. Um, and, and he's in this, stuck in this netherland where he refuses to work for people. Um, if you remember, he threw a fit at the 2019 Volta Espana when he was off the front and they asked him to wait up for Alejandro Valverde. But then he wants to ride for himself, but then his own director or his own trainer, Pachi Vila, says in the documentary, you're not strong enough. You don't have the watts per kilo that these other stars have. So if they, we make it hard on a mountain stage, you're going to get dropped before them. Um, not great when it comes from his own performance director's mouth that he's just not a watts per kilo you know, monster, like elite best in the world rider. So which means sure, maybe you can convince him that you'll just pay him enough money and he rides in support of Pogacar and things are good. But it means he's not going to be there when things get really, really hard on Final Climb. So he, he's not a super domestique. And it, I know that's deceiving because he's won big races, but he wins those races with, you know, he's, a, he's good tactically when it comes to stage hunting. He has good stage hunting like instincts, but that actually doesn't make a great domestique. Um, I, yeah, I can't, I, I do not like this move. I can't believe they did it. I don't totally understand it. Um, Pascal Ackerman's a weird one. Great sprinter. Um, he has struggled recently. I don't believe he's won a race, at least a serious race in this season. Um, seems to need a, like a lead out train to succeed. I, I can't even, I've heard he's making 1.5 million euros a year per year for two years at, at UAE. Um, it's not even clear to me that he's going to make a tour team. I mean, where does he fit into a Tour de France team? If they're racing for Tade Pogacar, they don't have room for a sprinter. So they've basically signed the super expensive sprinter for minor stage races and I guess the Giro or the Volta. Um, really odd, but then that doesn't even totally make sense because then they've signed Joao Almeida and Marc Soler, who are going to want leadership at a Grand Tour and aren't going to want Pascal Ackerman sprinting for himself, not helping them, and then taking up valuable resources, possibly bringing one or two riders for the lead out that takes away from the Grand Tour strategy. So um, yeah, I don't, I don't understand that move at all. I don't like it. George Bennett, uh, it's like, this is a really splashy signing. Um, I think it's just because George is such a personable writer that you kind of feel like you know him. He's had some good results throughout his career. He got second at Lombardia in 2020, eighth in the Giro d'Italia, 10th at the Volta de Spagna, sixth at Paris Nice. And he's a good writer. He did win Tour of California, uh, kind of in an awesome fashion back in 2017. But the fact is he's, he's 31 years old. He's not, he's probably replacement level domestique, climbing domestique. He hasn't been good this year. Um, he was the GC leader at the Giro d'Italia, 
kind of disappointed, gets 11th place. But if we look actually, if we look at his career record, that's actually not that much lower than what he's been doing at his best. Um, I actually can't imagine that Yumbo is too bummed to lose him. I think they think they can, for that money, for the money they're paying him, they can, you know, get as good, if not better support riders, especially with Jonas Vindegaard coming up, Primoz Roglic, Tom Dumoulin coming back. Um, they have a lot of good options on that team. It, it's, it's a bit of a nothing, nothing burger, in my opinion. You know, it's good for UAE just because they are so weak outside of Pogacar. It gives them at least someone to put forth um, a tough, hardworking rider who could succeed in the right situation, you know, is better than a lot of the riders they have currently. So um, don't hate that move. But I do think it's, its media reach is bigger than its actual impact on the bike. Um, and Bora is the other team that's been really active. Because they get rid of Peter Sagan, they get rid of Daniel Oss, who are all going to Total Direct or Total Energies with Peter Sagan. They have some, spl- some cash to splash. They're bringing back Sam Bennett. I love that move. I actually think Boris should just go all in for Bennett at the 2022 tour and just try to just win as many stages as possible. Um, where they start losing me is they're bringing in Alexander Vlasov, Sergio Higuita, Jai Henley. Um, these are, in my opinion, probably expensive Grand Tour riders who are never going to win a Grand Tour. Um, potentially never podium, or in the case of Henley, podium again at a Grand Tour. Um, Alexander Vlasov is a very talented rider, but he's never podium in a, in a Grand Tour. He got fourth at this Giro d'Italia. It was a fairly weak field. Probably should have got a podium there. Um, but you know, if you just look at his career profile, there's not a ton there. He's a talented rider. He's a good rider. You know, I if I was a manager, team manager, looking at him, I'd say this guy is a great domestique, and I want him working for my team leader. I want him working for Jonas Vindegaard. Um, he's not a he's not a GC a GC star. Same thing with Jai Henley. He had that great Giro in 2020, but I think you know we'll just have. I think that should just kind of live in in amber. You know, that was a great ride. Let's move forward. You know, we know what we have from him. The 2020 Giro was was an, the outlier. That's not the new Jai Henley. You know, another rider who should probably be a domestique. Um, and Sergio Higuita, he's certainly talented. Um, I don't think he's won a race in Europe since 2019 when he won a stage at the Vuelta España. Could be wrong on that, actually. I, I think that's true, though. Yeah, not, He's not a GC rider. He's just too weak in the time trial to ever seriously contend in a GC. Um, I do wonder, I'm looking at this roster... I wonder if this is building up the team to make a big GC signing in 2022, um, because all these guys kind of look like helpers in, you know, with the exception of Sam Bennett, who is certainly, um, I think, the best sprinter in the world. I think could have won a lot of stages at this Tour de France if he would have made his Deconic Quick Step team. Um, and I think he'll do well when he goes back to Bora. But the rest of this team, I, I don't get. Um, I think. You know, Henley, Hagita, and Vlasov all kind of outperform their performance on the bike in the media. People perceive them to be stars, but you know, let's be real, the, the total wins between Vlasov, Hagita, and Henley so far in 2021 is zero. They've neither none of them have won a race. So if we use winning as the judge of good, they're quite definitively not good. Um, and, and that's not that sounds too harsh, but but as winners, as GC leaders, that it's just not there. The, the evidence is not there that they're stars. It's a quick thing on Team DSM. Quickly going from one of my favorite teams to one of my least favorite teams, 
you remember that 2020 tour, they were incredible. I think they won three stages with two different riser, riders, Mark Hershey and Soren Krau Anderson. They were kind of the young, hot, up-and-coming team. And then they, they start leaking riders. You know, Mark Hershey just gets fired after four days of the 2021 season. And they basically say, this guy's, uh, the, the statement was like, this guy's lack of integrity threatens the team. So, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean he's doped? What are you trying to say here? And then they go to the 2021 tour. And I thought it was so disappointing. They just kind of went all in for Seis Bowl, even though he's not, let's be real, he's not a Tour de France stage winning sprinter. He's just not at that level. I feel like they blew a lot of opportunities at that race. And now they're bringing in John Deckenclaube after bringing in Roman Bardet last year. Um, and I, I couldn't hate these moves more. I think Bardet is making 1.8 million euros a year. Um, and he hasn't won a World Tour race since 2017. He did win a stage at the Vuelta Burgos. That's not a World Tour race. And I think even that was his first race win in three or four years. Degenkolb is not going to be winning races anytime soon. I mean, these, are, these guys were once very good riders. They are no longer world-class race winners. I mean, in my opinion, it's, it's, they could spend the money better elsewhere. Um, it seems like they've changed their strategy just like midstream. They used to be all in on the youth movement. Then they realized, well, these young riders, have, they're good and they have options and they might want to get paid and we don't want to do that. So let's just sign older riders without options. Um, that seems like a weird strategy. You're just signing worse riders because they're easier to boss around it is what it seems like to me. It sounds harsh, bottom line, but Degenkolb and Bardet are, are, are no longer elite riders. And they're getting way too much money thrown at them by this team. So um, th- those are my quick transfer thoughts. I might send out a newsletter to paying subscribers, kind of recapping my thoughts on the transfer season tomorrow before I leave on vacation. And But if I don't get that out, I will be doing daily postings starting on Saturday for the Volta. So sign up for that at beyondthepeloton.substack.com and have a great day. Bye.